This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast who's becoming not less popular. It's just that our appeal is becoming more select. Today we're talking about the phenomena of cult bands. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, and to join my cult, you must sacrifice your preconceptions. And my guests. My name is Tim Quirk. I am the front guy in a punk pop band called Too Much Joy, also music tech guy. I'm Aaron David Gleason, a recording artist. I was in a band called The Midnight Radio, and now I'm in a band called Aaron David Gleason, oddly enough. And actor. Oh, sure, sometimes. Depends on who's asking. I'm Christina Ami. In my day job, I'm a programmer for a big corporation, but writing and music are my two real passions. I write the blog Pop Culture Philosopher. I'm also a huge music nerd and an amateur songwriter. So it was Chris who suggested this topic. We're trying to figure out that term cult band is weird. I mean, it's, we have cult movies, but a cult band seems to be something totally other than that. Is it just fandom? <laughs> and the fact that your fandom is small, is that all there is to it? Then we can just be done. But it probably is more interesting we can, things we can say. Chris, can you just kind of start us off with the intuition that was driving this? One thing I've always kind of thought about is that in some ways, it says more about you if you like a really unpopular band than if you like a really popular band. If somebody says they love the Beatles, it really tells you very little about them because there's such a huge group of people who love the Beatles. But if somebody says they love like a less well-known band, like um, XTC is one that I, I was thinking of, it says some very specific things. And there's probably a story of like why they discovered that band, what that band means to them. I mean, I was also thinking about just the fact that as I get older, like my references get more and more obscure. So the bands that used to be just kind of like a cult band, but like a, a few other people would know them and that would be a connection. Now, if I, if I mention them at work, nobody has any clue who they are. They might as well, I might as well be talking about people from the 1920s. Yeah. So Chris is the only one completely new to my projects here. Tim, you were on Nakedly Examined Music and Partially Examined Life an age ago, but I knew you had written in this area, so I wanted to pick on you specifically. You want to kind of start us off with some thoughts here? Sure. I think if I had to come up with a definition of cult band, it's more about the composition of the audience than the size of the audience or the you know commercial success or lack thereof of the band. There are plenty of cult acts, Jimmy Buffett and the Grateful Dead spring to mind, who you know can fill arenas and have lucrative sidelines as well, whether it's merch or restaurants or other stuff. And then there are tiny cult bands. I think the last time I saw the Mekons, I was one of maybe 63 people in the audience. So to me, what makes a band a cult isn't the size of the audience or the amount of money the artist makes. It's really what's the proportion of people in that audience who own every single record, have met everybody at other shows, you know, recognize <laughs> other people in the audience every time you go to a show. It's really just a level of devotion that separates a cult act from a non-cult act to my mind. And Aaron, when I floated this by you, you were saying, well, maybe I'm a cult act yourself. Or do you think that's the case? No, I'm definitely not a cult act. I think that there's definitely room to delineate between a cult band and a cult artist. I think with cult music, there's a lifestyle associated with it. And sometimes there's a lifestyle associated with certain genres, like goth, for instance. I remember the best concert that I ever saw is a band that I never really listened to for pleasure, but it was the best concert I ever saw. And that was Bauhaus. And it was such a potent feeling in the audience. And it was such incredible rocket ship to Mars escapism that I understood the desire to be in that cult. 
in that moment, though I never really feel like living that life or being there any other time. But I would always go see a Bauhaus show to dip my toes in the water of that because it was so potent and it stayed with me for 20 years and I've seen some of the best shows on earth. I think the more also that you get into subgenres, the more people feel ownership because you really have to explore and go hunting and searching. And the other people that you find there when you get to those destinations are your brothers and sisters. And that's what's fun about exploring cult music. And the cult music is that family that you find there. You know, I hadn't really thought about Tim's model was the cult of a band. You know, it's called bands. But Aaron, you're bringing up like cult genres. And it it does seem like, oh, it's the goth kids. I don't think that Nick Drake is a cult artist. I think he has a cult following because it's pretty small. But I don't think his music is cult-ish. I don't think it lends itself to that. I mean, this could be just a nerdy delineation that nobody cares about, but we're all nerds and we love being nerds. So let's do it right now. You know? Well, yeah. Is is there something about the emotional depth, people who become fans, fanatics of a band, it seems like that it's because it is pulled at something just so something like Nick Drake, even though that's, you know, relaxing and really good. and, And, you know, there are a lot of people that respect him. Nobody's going to Nick Drake festivals dressing up as Nick Drake, but everybody's going to the Cure festivals dressing up like Robert Smith. And there's a difference there. Some people are, I think, confusing cult with small, but the Grateful Dead are enormous. They're one of the biggest bands of all time, and they're a cult band. They're not small. I would think maybe part of it is that for cult band or cult artists, there's often sort of a difficulty of admission. To it, meaning like yes. you have to work a little bit to learn to appreciate that music. The big one that I can think of is uh, Tom Waits. He's somebody who I always think of him. He's kind of a shibboleth in that like if somebody likes Tom Waits, they're probably a musician. And if they don't like Tom Waits, they're probably not a musician. His work is very, very challenging, I think, for the average person to get into. His voice is very gravelly. His instruments are completely dissonant. I remember when I got into Tom Waits, I consciously like sat down and listened to him until I started to appreciate him because it took me a while. And a lot of people I respected were saying, you really have to get into Tom Waits. But it, it took me a while to get on his wavelength. And then once I was on it, you know, I really loved his music. But it definitely wasn't the kind of thing where I could just throw it on and just love it immediately. Well, one, an interesting thing about Tom Waits is that unlike a lot of what are normally classified as cult acts, I think most cult acts are, they form communities around themselves because they're doing a good job of pretending to express their true selves. Whereas Tom Waits throughout his career has very obviously been adopting various persona. He maintains that persona through all his interviews and the persona shifted. Like, you know, he was this skid row bohemian in the 70s and then he just became this weird art damaged junkyard denizen later on. So it shifted a bit, but I don't think anyone thinks if you just met Tom Waits in a diner, that's who he'd be. You know, I doubt he's like that at home. Whereas I think Jimmy Buffett is probably pretty Jimmy Buffett-ish at home. Skillet, another cult act in the in the Christian realm, who have, you know, one mark of a cult band is if their fans give themselves a wacky name. So Skillet fans, I think, call themselves Panheads or Skilletheads, something like that. Uh, and they're a Christian rock group. So Tom Waits is an outlier to my mind because he's playing a part in a way that few other cult acts I've encountered really are. 
Wait, so you're saying the theatricality is not typically part of the cult act, or or it is that the Cure fans? There might be theatricality in the performance, but the persona of the person singing in particular, you know, they are, I'd say 90% of folks classified as cult acts are expressing their inner true selves, you know, or doing a good job of pretending to be doing just that. So Robert Smith may put on a whole bunch of makeup and tease his hair and wear weird clothes, but the words he's singing, you know, there's not a lot of artifice in there. That's the thing that, you know, I could never really get on board with the Cure or bands of that ilk, because I just think it's really weird to be playing a stadium singing songs about being misunderstood to 20,000 people clapping appreciatively as you do so. That just doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. I've wondered in this internet age, so I've just, I follow a few bands on Facebook. And so I get pushed to the top of my feed for some reason. Like I'm, I'm a member of the Prefab Sprout Facebook group, which is a band mostly popular in the 80s that I like. Respected in the XTC sort of way, British, but never made a huge impact over here. Again, you'd kind of have a story of why you're into that. But these people, they use this social media of whatever sort to sort of be in the constant company of whatever this thing is they like. So I'm just, there's nothing new really happening in prefab Sproutland. Like maybe the guy will put out an album every eight years or something, but it still they'll just be like, you know, the same debates about the transition in the year 2002 to this album. And just throwing out a song that if you're a fan of the band, you've already heard this song, like there's no news happening, but it just seems to be, I'm wondering if this is a connecting to your point, Tim, in that it's like when you really like a celebrity and you follow their every tweet and you want to hear their inner thoughts is that these are people that want to be, even if it's a band that's been dead for 20 years, kind of want to be around that sort of as something that takes up a significant portion of their mental space because now we can. We have these communities where we can do that. Are we going to talk about Big Star? Because Big Star is a band that had very limited amount of released material and people talk about it like it's happening now. Still, it elicits something in people. There's also a kind of underdog story and there's also a kind of ephemera story around it, that it was so short-lived. It was doomed from the beginning. I can't believe we actually got something out of it before it blew up. There's some element of that in some cult bands. And that's a big cult band. And talk about a band that musicians really like. Big Star is like a password at, at the door for musicians. You know, hey, what's, what's the password? Big Star? Oh yeah, you can come in. That's a possible another checkbox for Are You a Cult Band? Has another potentially cult band sung about you. Uh, if there's songs, if, if you're a musician who's had songs written about you, chances are you're a cult act. Yeah, that is a really great one. I bet we could come up with a list. Yeah, I know there's a song about XTC. Of course, there's a song about Brian Wilson. That would be a really interesting list to put together. I've written a song about the Mekon, so I know whereof I speak. It's interesting that you mentioned Brian Wilson because the Beach Boys are not in my mind, a cult band, but Brian Wilson is a cult artist, in my mind, because of his story, because of his eccentricity, because of his ups and downs. Yeah, he was kind of a cult band trapped inside a mainstream band. <laughs> well, and I feel having gone back, I watched the Love and Mercy documentary not that long ago, and it got me to listen to like, okay, what has he done in the last 15 years? And sort of listen to that entire output. And I have mixed feelings about it. And I think it takes some effort to get into, but not even in the way that Chris was saying of like, this is too artsy and weird, but just like 
do I like this guy enough to like this thing that he did for an increasingly select audience, you know, in 2006? So I don't know if that's the side of a cult or just like, I'm a fan of this person and I want to hear the stuff that they've done outside of their most culty period, which for Brian Wilson, that would be like when he was doing Smile. Here's another thing to add to the checklist. Have you had serious mental health issues? If so, chances are you're a cult artist. <laughs> Sid Barrett's yeah. solo albums. <laughs> Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, well-documented mental health issues. I think Lou Reed is certainly one of the biggest cult artists of all time. And he also became a pop artist along the way. But he started as a cult artist. And sometimes there's this wonderful revisionist history. While the Velvet Underground were making music, they were not popular for the most part. They were even reviled in many places. And then they became one of the most influential bands of all time over the years. You know, something that I was thinking when you were mentioning some of these groups is a lot of them are more famous because of the songs that they've written and that have been covered by other groups, other more mainstream groups. I think it's definitely that way for Big Star. A lot of these other groups, they'll have songs that they've written and uh, only like a select handful of people know about them. But one of those people makes a cover and it becomes a massive hit. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard a fish song from beginning to end. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know any fish songs, but I appreciate my friends who are, have gone on such a journey with them. And actually, interestingly, too, I think we could even dip our toes into this subject from being a cult band associated with substances to being a cult band now associated with sobriety. It's kind of interesting in this day and age, which they are. And I've had friends who were into substances and into fish and mixing those two things who are now sober. And Trey is now sober. And my sober friend loves that Trey is sober. So has continued on with fish and they've grown together. Well, another weird thing about fish is they have a cabal of fans who are all reporters or anchors on MSNBC. So from time to time, if you're ever watching that network, you'll see them sort of trade inside jokes among one another as they quote fish titles or fish lyrics. It's very annoying. I did not know that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, the reason I think you probably never heard one of their songs from beginning to end is I think it's all one song, right? They just, uh, <laughs> they're just probably still singing it right now. You're talking about passwords for musicians. And of course, it's genre specific. So Towns Van Zant is one of these names that I think, you know, his most famous stuff is probably covers all of his songs by other people. And I'm not quite into country enough or into, you know, Texas music enough or whatever, whatever I need to be into to have gone through a town Van Zant period, but I've almost done it. And I'm sure I'll do it soon. <laughs> These cults really attract me because I want to, now that it's so easy for, you know, just go to Spotify or whatever, pull up everything they've ever done to make a leap. You know, if you're willing to have that level of immersion, which I think most people probably are not that the age of streaming has made it so it's even rare. Like if I try to play a whole album around my family, they're like, what is wrong with you? Like, we haven't we heard enough of this artist? Like we've heard three songs. Can you just move on? Yeah, it's an interesting point because I do think there's a flip side to it, which is that it's what they call the long tail, where there's a lot of stuff that used to be too obscure for it to get sold much because, you know, it never make it into a record store or something. But there are enough like, passionate people all around the world that they can keep, you know, a cult band going because they can get to these individual songs that they're passionate about. So it is kind of a trade-off. I mean, like, I, th I think you're right. It's much harder to be an album artist now 
but it is maybe easier to be out there with a couple quirky singles that have really caught somebody's attention. Yeah, I think it's kind of sad that albums don't exist so much anymore, but vinyl is making a surprising comeback. So maybe it is kind of coming back. One thing about the streaming age is that, you know, it's theoretically good for cult acts because it used to be the case that there wasn't much economic benefit to having a small group of people who would listen to you over and over and over again. And now that's happily no longer the case. There are actual economic rewards for when I was at Rhapsody, I used to run these content analyses regularly. And we we came up with a metric, which was tracks per fan. So you could rise to the top of the tracks per fan chart, even if you know you were buried at like number 3000 or something on our just total plays chart. So somebody like Wilco, for example, was making as much money from Rhapsody as say the estate of Otis Redding was, because you'd have a million people listening to sitting on the dock of the bay. And you might only, this was back in the early aughts, so it might only be 10,000 people listening to Wilco, but they would listen to the records all the way through and then go back to the beginning and do it all over again and do that multiple times in a day. So their total stream count was just as high as Otis Redding's, even though they had far fewer fans. And I'm wondering if we have any idea, probably none of us are young enough or currently enmeshed enough in the music business, but you can tell me. It seems like all cult bands, they had, or at least were associated with a hit at one point, or somebody famous wrote a song about them, which is the entry point. There's some, or they did a TV theme song or something like that. There had to be some mass entry point or else you just, they wouldn't be on anybody's radar. But it seems like just word of mouth should make it so that somebody who just writes really smart, but just pretentious enough that like, it's not going to become a mass thing, but like people of a certain type will pass it to their friends and you would get bands developing followings that we would then call cult bands that purely came out of the internet. I just don't know enough about it to know whether this has actually happened. Well, Guided by Voices is a cult band, I would say, and I don't know one hit from them. I think of them as somebody, as a band that has written 500 really pretty good songs. It's not necessarily, even in the old days, the entry point didn't have to be a hit. You could get played on specialty radio. There were plenty of cult bands that you discovered through Dr. Demento or something like that, or college radio. So you could become a cult band without a hit, but you still had to have something that enough people heard over time to get you in the door. Again, the Mekons are my go-to definition of a cult band, and they never had anything even close to resembling anything like a hit, even on college radio. I think with Guided by Voices, Aaron, it was Eddie Vedder saying, oh, I love Guided by Voices. At the height of Eddie Vedder's Pearl Jam fame, vaunting this band like that by itself i feel like got a lot of people to like know who guided by voices is i don't know why something would rise it's not like we're all paying attention to eddie vetter interviews <laughs> but for somehow this information got out because of that word of mouth it's interesting that you say that because harry nelson never went on tour and the beatles famously when asked who their favorite band was said nelson and overnight, he was huge. He's a cult artist. He ended up having some huge hits. But what an eccentric, also painful trajectory in some ways life. Started off just pure and amazing. And, you know, a lot of things started weighing him down. But even through the weighing down, he wore it like a true artist. And this is why I was making the connection to sort of regular fandom of celebrities with Twitter and things like that, that 
my most listened to tracks, unsurprisingly, are the two that I did with Lucy Lawless, right? Who's been on <laughs> my podcasts a couple times. She's an enormous artist. And she has such, I've got to say, cult because like this passionate fan base who will listen only to the stuff that, you know, and I'll get all these emails. I only care about what comes out of her mouth. I don't care what you have to say. <laughs> like, it is really quite remarkable. And there might just be certain, you know, even in the entertainment world, I don't think most actors inspire that kind of devotion. It's just, you know, the particularities of her career. My way's voice is Boy George. And he's a cult artist. So whenever I go anywhere, I don't even know how I got programmed that in. But once it started, I thought, well, this is pretty funny. But now I actually look forward to Boy George giving me directions every day. So Boy George is a cult artist now just because he's way past his famous period? I think he was always a cult artist. I just thought that the Waze thing was interesting. (laughs) He was top of the pops in the early 80s. And I would say he got a song written about him, Dire Straits referred to him lyrically. I think you're the one who had said that um, the size of your audience isn't necessarily whether you're a cult artist or not. I was thinking about Prince, who was one of the hugest artists in the world, but still arguably a cult artist. I mean, how about Bowie, for that matter? Is it a matter of that they get a cult? In other words, somebody who actually will, like, they put out a lot of material, but they're typically known for their handful of hits, but they do have a fan base that is just swallowed up it takes a lot of work to become a real Bowie fan. And just even though there's not the entry point, like you can listen to Rebel Rebel or whatever, you know, without a lot of effort changes. But to say, oh, are you a real Bowie fan? Do you know that stuff from the, the later part of his life, etc.? I mean, if we go back to my initial definition, if you define cult by the level of fan devotion rather than by the number of fans or the amount of commercial success, then it's certainly possible for a completely mainstream act to have a segment of its audience that's not casual at all. That's actually crossing a line and becoming uh, stalkerish and obsessive. Bob Dylan certainly had that aspect of a fan base, particularly in the late 60s and early 70s. I'd say Radiohead probably has a portion of their fan base that's like that today, you know, that tries to one-up one another with the obscurity of the Radiohead music that they've obtained over the years. And their arcane knowledge of every twist and turn of their musical journey. R.E.M. is kind of an interesting band that had multiple lives. They were a band that made, I would say, more challenging, more opaque difficult entry music early on and then became this crystal clear pop smiths of the century at some point as well. Interesting musical trajectory. They were a band that you had to be in the know to enjoy and then they became ubiquitous at some point everywhere. I have a apropos REM anecdote. I was once at a music tech conference in Norway, I think, with Ernest Downs, who worked with R.E.M. for many, many years. This was after the band had broken up, I think. So we were just in a small, random Norwegian town that had a university where the symposium was being held. And Bertus and I were both leaving the conference a little bit early. And so we had the night before arranged to share a cab to the airport at the same time together. And the morning that we were going to leave, we went into like a half day session. And he said, hey, I hope you don't mind. But I had drinks last night with a guy who told me he's the number one REM fan in Norway. And he offered to give us a ride to the airport. He offered to give me a ride to the airport today. And I took him up on it. So instead of calling a cab, we're going to have this REM fan take us to the airport. 
And I said, that's fine. I don't care. So the two of us get in this REM fans, self-described number one REM fan in Norway. We get in his car and he's driving us to the airport. It was not an REM mobile. It was not. It did not. As we're driving, as we get close to the airport, he says, what time's your flight? And we tell him and he goes, oh, great. You have time then. And he literally like veers across three lanes of traffic, takes an exit uh, and says, I must take you to my house now. And so Bertus and I are in the back seat, just staring at each other. Like, are we about to get axe murdered? What's going on here? This guy drives us to his house, motions us out of the car, takes us into his house, opens the door to the basement and goes, go down there. And we're like freaking out. We're like, we're totally going to be murdered now. (laughs) And the guy basically took us downstairs to show off his REM collection and his REM shrine. He was this obsessive REM fanatic collector of everything. So he's showing us all this REM ephemera that he's collected over the years. And the one thing I remember was he had like multiple copies of Reckoning on vinyl because some of them had REM in the upper right-hand corner and Reckoning down in the lower left-hand corner and other versions flipped it. And this to him was like the most fascinating thing. And so we spent a little bit of time with him walking us through each and every REM artifact that he owned until I sort of coughed politely and said we needed to be going. And we got back in the car and he dropped us off at the airport and then he dropped us off and he drove away and Brutus turned to me and this kind of smile on his face. And he goes, well, I guess it really is an attention-based economy these days. We could have spent 50 euros on a cab or we could have spent 15 minutes in that guy's basement. Let's stop for some sponsor talk. If you are carrying a credit balance month after month, it can feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of debt. Upstart can help you make that final payment so you can get ahead. Upstart is a fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score and is expanding access to affordable credit. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. There are no doubt many options available to you for getting financial assistance. I want you to do your research very carefully before you take out any sort of loan. And I'm just hoping that Upstart is one of the places you will research. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart.com slash pretty. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. We have another sponsor, Nebia. And their Nebia by Moen Spa Shower, a high-tech, luxurious experience. Designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers, they spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience. And the Nebia by Moen Spa Shower is Nebia's most advanced shower yet with twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard shower heads. Let me repeat that. There is a substantial water savings using 45% less water good for the planet. You can feel good about staying in the shower twice as long. And a spray that is 81% more powerful than competition. There's a reason they call it the spa shower. It really fills up the space, makes you just never want to get out. And if you're still working from home like I am, maybe you don't have to. Think about it. With easy self-installation, Nebia by Moen can be installed in 15 minutes or less without the need for contractors, plumbers, or broken tile. If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebia by Moen. And ooh, it's got a sleek and modern aesthetic with a timeless design available in four premium finishes to complement any bathroom 
And they offer sleek and sustainable bathroom accessories such as shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, and bath mats. I very much appreciate the bath mat they sent me. I walk on it every day. The Nebula by Moen Spa Shower starts at just $199, and for Pretty Much Pop listeners, we have a deal for you. The first 50 people to use the code PRETTY at Nebia.com will get 10% off Nebia products. Go to Nebia.com slash pretty, that's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash pretty, to check out what they have to offer. The first 50 people to use the code PRETTY when checking out will save 10% off Nebia products. The only exception to this is the pre-order products as Nebia is instead currently offering free shipping in the U.S. on these products. Again, that's nebia.com slash pretty. Use that code pretty to save 10%. You're reminding me of, uh, so the residents, another culty, if any band is culty, they sold a, in 2012, the ultimate box set, which comes in a full-size working, maybe not working, maybe they had to take the motor out, but refrigerator. <laughs> so if you want to have your instant you know, copies in vinyl of all the residents' albums and singles and things. It was aimed at the high art market priced at $100,000. Only two have been produced. One was donated to the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The other for a wealthy fan in Indiana who ultimately did not pay $100,000 for it. So <laughs> I think this was more a an art piece that they were making, commenting on this phenomena of, of uh, <laughs> collecting rather than a serious offer for their fans to get an instant thorough collection. There was a um, Wu-Tang Clan album that they only pressed one copy of it. The pharmacy douchebag got it, and he just had to give Martin it up. Scrally. Scrally. <laughs> so there was a, I forget the band. It might have been Slayer. It's some German, very, very hard-edge metal band. They put out a box set that the deluxe package came with plaster casters of each of the, came with dildos of each of the band members' penises. That's intense. The funny thing is, like, you assume it's guys buying these for a band like that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they, <laughs> they have a female fan base that I'm unaware of. Yeah, I wonder in some of these cases, like, if it's done by a cult band, is this a comment on consumerism or is this a consumer product that... <laughs> I remember seeing uh, XTC circa 1979 imaged action figures, you know, so this is something <laughs> created in the last decade, you know, from them, from the drums and wires period. So you could set up your full XTC. Like that is a niche product. If ever I've heard one and just sounds like somebody having fun with the concept of action figures rather than trying to make any money off of something. I guess there are people in the world who would want an Andy Partridge or a Colin Moulding action figure, but really a Dave Gregory action figure? That that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it's like the lost hatch playset, like just <laughs> making fun of the, the fact that just sit in front of the computer. Like this is something you keep in the box. Let's say that. Another definition, you know, another thing to add to our checklist of cult axes. If you have like Guided by Voices or like Andy Partridge, multiple CD sets of your outtakes and demos. So Andy Partridge from XTC put out a set of fuzzy, what he calls them fuzzy warbles. I think it's one through eight. And they're just CDs with unused songs and demos of songs that wound up on the records. And I think I was partway through number five when I realized like I'm leaving the cult. I can't, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> Normally like I'm, a, I'm an obsessive collector completist. I like having everything. And that to me was just like, this is, I've lost interest at this point. It's just too much even for me. Just give me the two songs that I haven't heard in some other form. That is what I wanted off of those things. That's what's, you know, what's on my MP3 player today is all the songs that the fully realized songs that I couldn't get anywhere else. 
but I'm still, I have suitcase one, two, and three from Guided by Voices. So I haven't, I haven't reached that give up point with Robert Pollard yet. Well, what's interesting about that, I mean, XTC famously had the worst uh, music deal in the business to the point where at one point, I think Colin Molding was repossessing cars to uh, make ends meet. So I think what Andy Partridge is doing right now is milking his fan base for every last cent that he can get out of them. Well, and that should be something, again, kind of getting at this, if I want to be around this every day. So this is what Patreon is for. And I follow some artists who like make actually really good use of Patreon. And it just creates a whole new relationship with your fans that like, yes. Yeah, so the original keyboardist for XTC, anybody remember his name? Barry. Barry Andrews. Yes. Was from Shriekback. He's like a studio nerd and he's constantly creating little loops and textures and things. And so he can just put those out in his, you know, enough things will come out per month that you could be. Yeah. So I, I gave him a couple bucks a month for probably a year because that was worth like being in this genius arranger's head. Like I'd rather follow that than hear what, you know, the president is thinking every day. Like that's the power that social media has given to us to have our constant companions be the people that we actually admire and want to be around. I don't think that's necessarily uh, restricted to cult acts. Uh, a thing I said a lot in the aughts when I was speaking on music panels and things was that to the extent that Too Much Joy had a career, a lot of it was based on getting drunk with our fans after the shows. And that sort of bonded them to us in a way that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise. And I would have loved, I wish that the internet and social media had existed when we were recording on Indian major labels, because that gives us a way to get drunk with our fans virtually. And we could do it at scale rather than, you know, a dozen people at a time, city by city. And there are plenty of acts that can benefit and that are benefiting from setting up subscription services that you wouldn't necessarily consider a cult act. Like Josh Rouse, there was, this was, I think, 10 years ago, even. I don't know if he's doing it anymore, but, you know, that's just a singer-songwriter. I don't think of him as a cult act in any way, except for the fact that, you know, he has a small singer-songwriter-sized audience. But he had enough fans who were devoted enough, and I was among them that were willing to pay him a monthly fee for, you know, just hearing his works in progress and random live stuff and demos and things. Another act that maybe is right on the edge of being a cult act, Ockerville River, this indie band, a year and a half ago, I think they did a, a year-long subscription thing where every month they put out a new sort of live or rarities release and you could buy them all in advance. And it's just, he spent a year cataloging, you know, the career of his band through outtakes and live performances. And if you like or even just admire the guy and his songwriting, it was sort of worth the money. Mark, you were talking a little bit earlier about youth. And um, I'm definitely not young myself, but I've been fascinated kind of by the influence of TikTok right now on the music scene. So TikTok basically it uses these little snippets of songs. So it's usually only about like 10 or 15 seconds of a song. But what it will be is that that song symbolizes something to the users of it and they'll you know millions of users will create like a little a little video that goes along with some concept that the song has it's interesting because it's very random some of these are like really well-known songs some of them are songs that were like minor hits years ago some of them are completely obscure songs it's something i'm definitely seeing as an outsider but it's really interesting to me how powerful that is and it turns out one of the genres that's perfect for that sort of use is punk pop and TikTok is absolutely driving a resurgence of the form right now. I am also not young, but in around February, I went on TikTok and put an instrumental down 
and a young cult artist named Emma Freeman put down a vocal and you know it was a few bars of music and it started to get some traction and people said where can i get this song so i spoke to emma and i said would you be interested in completing this song and putting it out through my record label and i'll handle all of all of that part of it and she said yes it was really exciting to be a part of that for myself who's been in the music industry and released um my first music in 2004 i felt very included and i actually feel like tiktok is very inclusive and not ageist that's exciting for me it gives me hope for the music industry right now and did you th- consider her a cult artist because of her tiktok presence or was she just separately she a cult okay so she is a tiktok grown cult band yeah emma freeman is a very specific very esoteric artist she's very talented and i was honored that she wanted to work with me and i was the producer on this track called silver cup i wrote the instrumentation and she wrote the melody and the lion share of the lyrics but i followed her in terms of the production the accompaniment and but all of this started from interest that we garnered on tiktok and she has a bigger presence on social media spotify as well uh, across all of those platforms than than i do and she's only 24 years old so i was very honored to be uh, a part of this i mean this is what i would hope that young artists who you know at the point where i was sending out demos to record labels and not getting reply or getting no or you know that are not going through that are just like no i will just go and make the music and if it is brilliant then maybe it'll actually catch on and unless the internet is just so decentralized that things don't really catch on you know obviously things do go viral they seem to find footing can i ask you tim so you put out your first too much joy album in a long time last year was too much joy i would consider that you guys are a cult artist if during that intervening period you were getting on a regular basis people reaching out to you saying when's there going to be more too much joy stuff when's there going to be cuz like that as if your stuff from the 90s was enough part of their life through the dry spell that they still wanted it was it that kind of thing or is it just yes we were famous and now we're sort of not and then i would say we were Too much joy was probably like just squeaked over the line into cultum during our whatever our reign was in the in the 90s just by virtue of the fact that we got just enough MTV play and just enough commercial radio play and a lot of college radio play to assemble a live fan base that would follow us from town to town so it wasn't quite grateful dead level you know this was happening in small indie rock clubs but people would literally follow behind the van or if they were rich enough charter planes So we had that sort of a following and it was just enough, you know, I'd say a couple times a month someone would reach out over social media or email or literally physically mail me birthday presents that it was clear there were still some people who still gave a shit out there, but the record we made, you know, it was all just cuz we were bored during the pandemic and everybody was losing their minds a little bit and cuz Bandcamp started doing their first Friday thing. So we just put out a couple singles on first Fridays and the response to those was kind of overwhelming we're like oh we could probably we never even discussed going and looking for a label deal we just set up an indiegogo campaign 
said, if we can raise $5,000, we can recording for free at home. We can have enough money to hire an artist to create some packaging and professionally master the results. And we raised 20 grand. And we did it again. We don't have a lot of fans, but the ones we do love us more than the average casual listener of a band likes a band. So our average, you could pre-order the album before it existed through this Indiegogo campaign. You only had to pay $10, but the average donation was like $79, I think, because a lot of people were overpaying. And one of the things I got to say, this is one of the, it's amazing to me that more digital music services don't do this. One of the greatest things about Bandcamp is when you buy any record on Bandcamp, the retail price that the artist sets is the floor, not the ceiling. So they have a little box where they, you know, they show you the retail price that the band, that's the minimum you have to pay, but then you have to type in the amount you want to pay. And it can't be lower than the minimum price that's set there. But even once we got out of the Indiegogo campaign and the, com- the record was commercially released, all the people buying it through Bandcamp over- are overpaying for it. So even through the Indiegogo campaign, if the average donation was you know, $79 in Bandcamp, it's something like $28, I think. And again, you can get the thing for 10 bucks if you want it. But people are happy to give us more money just because it's, you know, it's worth that to them. So I think you don't have to be a cult band to take advantage of this stuff. It's just a matter of, you know, giving your audience ways to pay you what the music is worth to them rather than what the market says it's worth. Because I freely acknowledge my music is worth zero dollars to the majority of human beings on planet Earth. I will pay you to listen to it. (laughs) Yeah, there's a small subset of people to whom it's worth, you know, upwards of 500 or even a thousand dollars. And I'm happy to give them opportunities to throw that into the kitty so we can keep making more music. That description of a cult as, you know, if people are constantly bugging you, like when is your new thing going to come out? That just means you have a fan base that is self-energizing. You feel like well, plenty of people like my music, but I don't get clamoring for like, when are you going to put out a new thing? No, <laughs> it's more like when I put out a new thing, I will send it to people like, you want to kind of do me a favor and listen to this? <laughs> like that is, I've talked to lots of artists for my music podcast who feel like that, even though they have, you know, a sort of illustrious past that they still feel like I mostly do this for me. You know, it's great that I can make enough money that I'm not going into horrible debt doing this, but to actually have, it's almost seems like you need a cult to consider your fan base acceptable enough to like motivate you additionally to like put out something that you wouldn't necessarily just do because you're the kind of musician that just eats and breathes music and has to put it out. I wonder if cult bands are more polarizing, you know, that you either love them or you hate them. You're not neutral about them. You're not like, you know, I kind of like this group. You're either like, this group is everything to me, or you're like, what is this? Turn it off. Well, and this is a great sort of final topic for us, maybe because we've been talking about it from the artist perspective and things, but from the perspective of like the other cults that you're aware of out there, (laughs) that I think this is one of these things like, insane clown posse that seems like i couldn't even name one of their songs i'm sure i've listened to something at some point but i know about those juggalos you know that the reputation of them as a cult here's another checkbox for our are you a cult band if you have a significant number of fans at large in the world who are doing cosplay of you so I go out, there are plenty of Morrisseys out there. There are plenty of Robert <laughs> Smiths walking around. There are, if I see a member of the, you know, if I see a Juggalo who's an insane clown posse fan, they're immediately recognizable as such. That's, you know, possibly one mark of the cult act is your fans love you so much, they literally want to be you and they will go to great lengths to look like you. Seems a lot of guys getting older, they must really like Phil Collins because they're just, they're looking more <laughs> and more. 
I'm dialing in from Oakland, California. And when my, when my wife and I moved out here from New York in 1996, it was, we were walking along around San Francisco and I was like, everybody here looks like they're in the replacements. But I don't, I don't think they were even replacements <laughs> fans. It was just, yeah, that was just the style then. I know there are lots of bands where, you know, my getting into them or not, like REM being one that if I knew a group of people who are into them that I didn't really like, it doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, a cult and they just love REM, I, but that's the kind of the, the quintessential case of this where often a cult, I think to me is a turnoff. Like it was a long time before I would give the Grateful Dead a real chance because of that reputation and because of the demographics and the character and, you know, my own sort of anti-drug snobbery or whatever it was that it did not fit my qualifications, not just musically because I didn't know that much of their music, but the people, that thing. I'll tell you, you know, I'm an antisocial motherfucker, so I don't know how generalizable this is, but I adore the Mekons. I'm happy to use the word worship. The fact that my wife knew who the Mekons were is not the only reason I'm married to her, but it's a big reason I'm married to her. It's just like that was an instant like, oh, you've A, you've heard of them and B, you like them. I can therefore like you. That said, when I go to Mekon shows, generally speaking, I don't like recognizing people in the audience from prior shows. I don't necessarily want to be their friend, but that might just be me. But also, as a musician in the 90s, I know recognizing people from show to show actually got to be a bummer at a certain point. And nothing against them. Obviously, I'm happy for the patronage. I'm glad they followed me around. But it sort of, at a certain point, it meant we weren't growing, right? So I wanted to see strangers in the audience. And in 1996, I wasn't seeing any strangers in the audience. Obviously, in 2021, I'm happy for anybody who shows up and I'm much nicer and, and more compassionate and empathetic about it now. But there was a period of time, both as a fan and a musician, when I didn't like being that close to the people around me. If you saw one of your old fans, one of your old fans from the 90s, would you recognize them today, you think? A couple of them, yeah. I mean, you know, we're all wider around the middle and have less hair on top, but I'd probably recognize them. The, the problem with me is when I do encounter a fan, I am invariably alone. It's like to a hilarious extent, my wife will have just gone to the bathroom in the movie theater and someone will come up and ask for my autograph. It's like, could you wait five minutes and like, get, let me get, get a witness for this? <laughs> they're probably lurking there like, I don't want to bug him when he's with his wife. Come on, you know, like they're waiting for that moment. <laughs> Actually, here, wait, I, I got one other anecdote that is sort of related to what we're talking about here. There was one time Too Much Joy was playing Irving Plaza in New York and my wife and I lived in the East Village at the time. So I was already in the club. She was coming into the club and we've written a couple of songs about her. I've written a couple of songs about her. So if you were like a real diehard fan, you knew who Donna was, you know, who Tim's wife was. So she came backstage when she got into the club and she said, as I was walking in here, one of your diehards ran up to me and they were like, oh my God, are you Donna? And she said, yeah, I'm Donna. And the person looked at her and said, What's being married to Tim like? Is it as fun as I think it would be? And this was a guy who was saying it to her. And she just got a <laughs> shit-eating grin on her face and said, it's funner. So I kind of love her for that. Aaron, how does your wife, uh, <laughs> these dynamics come up in terms With of... fans? Or, or just the fact that, you know, if I specifically put out a song... Actually, I do have a song with my wife's name, but it's kind of a novelty throwaway thing that I did for Valentine's. But like something that was like a significant song that I was, you know, describing in detail. I don't know. I can make her uncomfortable. <laughs> I have a good anecdote about this. I have a song that I released last year. I've been really interested in collaborating. I have felt like I had hit a wall myself and I needed to get a new infusion. And last year I reached out to 
another artist named Lauren Marcus, who's a Broadway performer, but also just an outrageously gifted singer-songwriter. And she had some lyrics, Lauren Marcus did, and she sent them my way. And I wrote the music to it. And I said to Lauren, I'm going into the studio. Would you mind if I recorded this? And the lyrics were a brutal assessment of a relationship. And I have written pretty much autobiographical music. I don't write stories about other people. So I release less of me. And I got a lot of people texting me, hey, are you and Stacy okay? Are you going to get a divorce? I mean, we had no idea, Aaron, that you felt this way. And so I had to say, no, we're fine. Just taking some liberties. I think we've hit on a potential future topic that could take up a whole episode of, of, uh, you know, songwriting versus, you know, how that involves your personal life. To finish up this discussion, can we go around? Is there a cult band you want to recommend or say a few words about that maybe has not yet come up in the discussion or you think deserves more, more praise? Chris, do you want to start us? Do you have any, anything left on your plate? I guess they're pretty well known. Um, they were really big in their home country. It's called Os Mutanchis. They're a Brazilian teenage psychedelic rock band from the 60s. They got really big at one point because uh, David Byrne was kind of championing their music. But their stuff is just amazing. Like, if anybody hasn't heard it, it's really mind-blowing. The way I found them was I was at my favorite record store, and they were playing a track by them. And I didn't ask what it was at the time, but the song stayed with me in my mind for the next year until I finally heard it again. And I was able to like track it down, but it was so mind altering just to hear that song that I could not forget it after that. Aaron, do you have any more to leave us with? I'm going to leave you with this. This just popped into my mind. Check out Northern soul as a genre in general and the playlist and the story of why Northern soul is called Northern soul. To me, it's really awesome to hear all of these songs that could and should have been hits, but weren't, but are adjacent hits. And for me, as an artist who's really, I love that area. I never was in the bigger area, and that's okay. I'm perfectly happy. But I love the family that gathers around Northern Soul. This is like Northern England? Northern Soul is a genre, but okay. the story of how it came to be is really interesting, and the, and the playlist is really interesting. Okay. The music is not from Northern England. It got played in Northern England at casinos and all-night dance parties, and it got coined as Northern Soul by a guy named Dave Godden, who was sort of sniffingly dismissing all the Northerners who came down to his London record shop looking for fast-paced dance numbers that they heard in the clubs, as opposed to the deep Southern Soul that he preferred. If you want a specific example, One of my favorite songs, probably one of my top 10 songs of all time that fits in that genre is by a New Orleans singer named Tony Owens. It's called This Heart Can't Take No More. And every time I listen to that song, and I probably listen to it a thousand times, I wind up breathless by the end of it with goosebumps. It's just a stunning, stunning achievement. But in terms of cult acts that haven't been mentioned, I'm going to name one that that I don't think has attained the level of cultdom that they deserve just yet, or he deserves. His name's Mike Sport Murphy. He was in a Long Island bar band called The Skells back in the late 80s, early 90s. He put out a couple of increasingly weird solo records that were either self-released or uh, he was briefly on Kill Rock Stars. I don't know if they're on Spotify. I haven't checked. 
But basically, I, I kept the blog running for four years called Five Star Songs. It's fivestarsongs.tumblr.com, which was basically just me writing a blurb about the 1,100 or 1,700 songs in my collection that I've rated five stars. And he was easily, every time I got to a Skells or a Mike Sport Murphy song, I think most of them I had to upload to YouTube myself because I couldn't find Spotify links for them. But he's just an unheralded genius. And I would say modeled himself on other unheralded geniuses like Skip Spence. My taste is very not like a record store guy who, or, you know, a college radio station guy who just knows lots of individual things. Like I'm getting more like that doing this music podcast for five years now, but I'm very much by nature, a branching tastes. In other words, like, Oh, I'm really into Genesis. Well, Genesis is not a cult act, but Anthony Phillips, their guitarist from the first couple years, who has a string of solo albums a mile long, like his stuff, some beautiful acoustic guitar stuff like that is getting culty. And the one that I would specifically focus on, the Crowded House, the Finn Brothers, going back to Split Ends. Well, this is getting sort of increasingly culty, but there's some hits involved there. Well, their very earliest albums, their original Sid Barrett figure was uh, this guy, Phil Judd, who is well known for some of his solo stuff, like with the swingers and stuff in New Zealand but like has never really broke over here and and even now is putting out on a shoestring budget albums at a, like a pretty constant rate and is just one of these mental health issues, no marketing skills, <laughs> weird style, kind of circusy music, circusy pop music. So Phil Judd, a guy that I've actually interviewed for my Naked Lean Sam music. So I'll leave that with you. Thank you to all three of you for joining me for this. This was fun. It was nice to meet you guys. Same here. Thanks. I really enjoyed this. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.